Hi, Ajay. Thanks for the nice little sniff. There's no better course. So, and cross country skiing's meant to be hard. Uh, really fun racing. Hi, I'm Rosie Frankowski from APU. See, here we have with the hero Bjorn Daly. That's the great thing about sport. Make it rain. Make make it rain. You play to win. It is. I mean, that's that's our sport. So, toughen up, train harder, and get in that pack and make it rain. Make it rain. Make it make it rain. First of all, make it rain. Make it rain. You see, the critic of air must use air to make a case against air. The fact that he's able to make an argument at all proves that he's wrong. And from that, I, it's sort of up to me to pick the ones that I really like. I made some bacon. Bacon. Yeah. I'm sure you have experience with bacon. two very nice pairs of skis, you know, that they feel exactly the same. Let's go. Ain't no way they can stop me now, daddy, because I'm on my way. I can feel my way. On the back stretch, it is Mellon and Richardson. During the race, she heard me. I'm very flattered about that. <laughs> you are skiing very wise. You know, we're gonna have to work hard. We're gonna have to, we're gonna have to train hard. But you know, this, this group has got a has got an already work ethic. You know, so that's not gonna be the problem. I gave her a burnt piece. All right, folks, welcome to the Cedar Skier Podcast. So glad that you could be with us today, broadcasting to you live, Shovel Lake Public Radio here in Leadville, where it is currently cloudy. It looks like Seattle, Washington, outside of the Cedar Skier Podcast broadcasting studios. That's right. It's it's kind of a we've had kind of a strange summer i think a little bit um maybe it's good lots of moisture uh that that has not been a problem this year although it's been a problem in one sense and here we go right away to the news desk on the cedar skier training update it was my understanding that roller skis could go through water now when i originally started roller skiing i definitely avoided water it seemed like a very counterintuitive idea and as someone who rollerbladed as a youth, rollerblades do not work on pavement that's wet. But roller skis, it's like this weird-looking phenomenon. You're like, wow, how are they not slipping? You know, it's rubber tires. That's how. Um, so now I kind of like roller skiing in the rain. It's actually kind of fun. Um, the last seven days or so, though, I've noticed that my roller skis have been making some weird squeaky noises. And I, I guess I didn't really think much of it. Um, because they still ro- have been rolling fine. I think they have been gradually losing some speed. but So they're making squeaky noises. It's kind of this off and on thing. And at the end of one of my workouts, I got to the very end of the workout and I stopped at my car and I started like just kind of baby jogging for roller skiing to the car. But while I stopped, the back wheel on one of my roller skis just locked in place. And I thought, this is very strange. What just happened? Is this because I stopped moving that now my wheel will not turn? 
and I picked up my roller ski and I could not get this thing to move at all. Like I was yanking on as hard as I could. I finally somehow got it like just inching forward and then it like, it was like it like loosened up. Like, boom, now it's back to spinning normal. Did, oh man, two or three workouts after that, like long workouts um, somehow. And now I realize how lucky I was, but did a couple workouts since said yesterday I'm out in the rain and um, roller skied an hour with my wife, a little bit less, went back out and I'm going down this tiny little hill in a, in a totally quiet residential area and my roller ski locks again and I just like, you know, my left leg, it's just bam, it stopped. So I'm like gliding on my right leg for, I don't know, 10 yards or whatever and no, I'm going down. So I, I was able to kind of, you know, take it as easy as possible, I guess, and damaged a glove, ripped the glove open. But um, other than that, I was, I'm pretty fine. Don't have many scrapes or anything, but could not move the wheel at all. Brought it back, did a little dissection, uh, took out the bearings and like, there was some gunk in there for sure. Uh, and I cleaned everything out and then tried to kind of put the bearings back in. And now, I don't know, my wheel like turns really slowly and I'm not sure if that's because I put the bearings in wrong, if I broke something in the bearings or if it's because I, it's fine. I just need like more grease in there now, but it's, um, yeah. And meanwhile, my other, my other wheel has just been spinning slower. So I actually didn't start this workout for 45 minutes because the other roller ski, I was messing around with that back wheel because I was annoyed that it wasn't gliding as long. So the wheel that screwed me over was actually the one that was working well, it seemed. Anyway, I don't know if I should be suing IDT, Johannes Klabo himself. Um, I'm not really sure what to do. This is very disappointing, obviously, right now. We are really down and out here in as far as training devices goes. Uh, we lost our mountain bike at the beginning of Jul- or at the end of July. That still has not come back to us. We we don't really know when Enoch is going to get back. Enoch, the van, of course, has the mountain bike inside, and it's at a Billings GMC getting repaired. Um, but it, they said they told us almost two weeks ago that hey, you know, we've been we it took us a week to find your parts, but now we just found them. Okay, you're gonna order them then. So a week of, they didn't call us, we called them, parts are now been found, now they ordered them, it's been two weeks, we still, have, we haven't heard back anything, so I gotta call them today, but that's, that's like the life update, is we can road bike, we can skate ski, and we can run, which is good, I'm glad I'm like healthy in those other areas, but um, all the double pole assaults might have to go on hold for a bit, so anyway, it's cloudy outside right now, here in Leadville. But we know you didn't come to the Cedar Skier podcast just to listen to me um, whine and moan about random things. Um, in my own life, you want to hear me do that and complain about the U.S. ski team. So we got something for that right away here. And we got a couple studies we're going to look at today. Before I do that, I do want to say I teased this uh, many shows ago that we're still going to like go through the Nils Vanderpool manifesto. It's 62 pages. I... I was looking at it again yesterday. I'm like, would this be good material to just read through over the course of several shows? Maybe. You know, like a live reaction. Like, we're just going to read his thoughts. Because it's kind of, like, written somewhat narratively and reflectively. uh, As opposed to me just talking about it. We'll see. Uh, I tease that. We're still sort of thinking about it. And I also tease that I wanted to look at a periodization studies. And I found a bunch. And it's very dramatic. Much more dramatic than I thought it would be. So... Um, in terms of like scientists fighting and bickering over the science, <laughs> science. So that'll be fun to kind of discuss a little bit too, but not today. But I did bring two studies to the table, or rather two reviews of studies to the table. So we're going to review the review of the studies uh, and give you some takeaways from that. First, though, on Instagram, Gus Schumacher posting a couple of days ago, he says, I'm pledging to vote in November because voting is how we as members of the outdoor state have influence over the treatment of our lands. It feels so much better doing, all caps, something to protect the places we love than to sit around and be sad about changes we see at home, like raving glacier getting smaller. Join me in choosing action over apathy and committing to vote. Head over to the link in my bio to make your pledge. 
Uh, and he's got a little picture of him running by this glacier that must be uh must be Raven Glacier maybe. I don't know. It's somewhere in Alaska. It looks um looks pretty small. Actually, it looks pretty gargantuan. But you know that's nothing to say. It probably is smaller than it used to be. Um, I think this is interesting how he says it feels so much better doing something. Now I have not deep dived Gus Schumacher's itinerary, but at the same time that he's saying that we have a slew of U.S. ski team athletes that are over in Scandinavia right now. So they flew over to Scandinavia for a couple of weeks to get in a tunnel and ski and also to do some roller ski races. And we also have, I follow Julia Kern on Instagram and she and Jess Diggins are in Australia. And I don't know if anyone else is with them. Um, so it, it and uh, yeah, like Jess Diggins has a picture of her, I think, with Julia as well. Maybe I'll go to her page real quick. Um, so they're maybe just kind of like hanging out. Yeah, in fact, an hour ago, Jesse Diggins just posted a video of her and Julia Kern dancing in their retu- in their like hotel room or wherever they're staying, and um, it says "Rainy Day Off Project." Well, that's good that you guys flew all the way to Australia to shoot some music videos and log K's during the winter months down south. Um, anyway, <laughs> this brings up a point, I guess, of here's, here's, kinda, here, here's the reason I bring this up. The U.S. ski team is very vocal about promoting climate change activism i guess is that the right phrase um protect our winters uh we know that right after the olympics both jesse diggins and gus schumacher went to the white house and made some presentations okay and um that is all good i i guess right the idea in my opinion the idea of being a good steward of the earth is a good thing so if you are going to our the most powerful people in the land and saying hey we want to be good stewards of the earth here's something we should be doing okay like i'm for that i don't know the nature of the things they did present so it's hard for me to go i back the exact things they were doing but the problem i'm seeing here is they're going and doing that and then going and and flying across the world in the middle of summer right to hit some snow for a couple of weeks in australia they're doing things that are very very bad for the environment in other words so they're asking and promoting and kind of saying we this is a crisis and they do this all winter too like look at this look at this venue it used to be so full of snow and and now it's not see our world is changing we're not even going to be able to ski in 10 years you're not even going to be able to teach your kids how to ski because the sport you love you're not even going to be able to do it in the world that you're creating for us and our future how could you you know they they like to like really dramatic um, make make this a huge drama and then they ask for us to change and do all these things. But then they go and do stuff that's extremely bad for the environment. And I've talked to some people and we've had good discussions actually about even, you know, is it possible that sometimes when you see these, here's a venue, it used to have snow. Here's the same picture 20 years later. Look how it doesn't have snow. Or here's a venue, used to have snow. Now they have to use man-made snow. Are these things actually examples of climate change or is this like kind of more of a micro climate change anecdote and if you're like confused or think i'm crazy you're probably just not understanding what i'm saying because i'm not i'm not coming at this from a position of like vehement climate change denying it's more um are we sort of uh missing uh misidentifying what's actually happening right here and sort of just grabbing onto these really dramatic examples and then trying to make a point and and on that, it does seem like at least one reason you could you could say that's possible is look at how often the narrative changes around climate change. But I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole right now. So let's just put that aside. Let's just focus on this idea of people who are really high up in the public, you know, eye in the public sphere of influence, calling for one thing, doing something completely different. And I think the obvious like defense for these athletes is to go, well, this is part of their job. Like they need to go train and they need to fly across the world to do world cup races. They need to do all these things. Don't they like, this is just, this is part of their life. What do you, what do you expect them to do? Do you expect them to, 
to change everything. Like they can't really do that. You know, it's sort of this and, and on a much worse level, it's kind of the John Kerry thing where he's like flying around in private jets all over the place. Like, well, he has to do that. He's got to meet with these leaders to save the earth. That's why he has to fly around in a private private jet. Um, but to, to me, I kind of go, no, 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 no. If you're an athlete and you really, truly believe that this crisis is of the nature that you say it is, then you should be doing everything in your power to avoid making egregious errors like having two individuals fly to Australia to go skiing for three weeks and then spend one entire day making a music video on Instagram. That's not okay. Like, figure it out. So I'll present a solution here. You know, like, if I was an athlete and I was at the professional ranks and I felt like, okay, I, oh, actually, hey, before I go into this, I need to also rip the Norwegians because <laughs> Johannes Klavo might be the worst defender of this, if you think about it. Here's a guy who lives in Norway where there is accessible snow, like within a drive, a day's drive. He could drive to a glacier and get on snow when he wants to, roller ski when he wants to. He's in the epicenter of the sport, period. He's going to fly to America, to a place that is like... 6,500 feet of elevation, you know, Park City, and train there for a month. Like, is there any worse display of, you know, like an action that is worse for the environment, you know, flying here, which is one of the worst things you could do um, in terms of emitting greenhouse gas or greenhouse gases and carbon, right, footprint stuff. And then he's coming to just a place where he's just going to roller ski anyway. It's like, and it's, it's not like there, there isn't really that, that much of a special thing to Park City. Like for Americans, it's a little bit special because it does sit at a good elevation for elevation training. And it happens to have really good trails and running, good weather and, you know, a roller ski track. For us, it's pretty great. But like for a Norwegian, it's kind of chopped liver. Like they've got amazing roller ski tracks everywhere. And again, they've got altitude um, places they could train at altitude on snow. So I don't know. It's, it's weird. Uh, and I know there's maybe like way down the trail, there's some people, advocates who like say that roller ski training is really the way to go. Look at the Russians. They like have this controlled environment. That's why they prefer roller skis to even being on snow, blah, blah, blah. Okay, fine. But generally speaking, I think you could agree that the more time you spend on snow, the better, which is why people go and chase snow. Like this is why Diggins and Kern are going to Australia. It's like, we got to get on snow. And there's some literature that says, you know, every so often it's important to get on snow from a technique perspective. And I think that's why Wickham is taking the U.S. guys team and some others to Norway right now to get in a ski tunnel to get on some snow. Okay, but... Yeah, I, I think, so all that being said, we see this just hip, blatant hypocrisy that, that's a little bit troublesome, okay? And I think I think you have to, if, if you're someone who's like totally the most green person you, you think you know, you, you know, you're like, I am all for this in every sense of the word, like, you have to kind of step back and go, yeah, that's a good point, because, I mean, again... You can't, you can't just say, well, it's their job. They got to do this. Yeah, okay, but what? that's exactly what the rest of the world says. The, the people who get labeled as climate change deniers are the, are the people, a lot of them, the vast majority, who are like, hey, I want to take care of the earth. I want to be a good steward of the earth. But you can't just ask all of us to drop everything we're doing, every normalcy in our life, and, and make these incredible black-to-white changes and then you're not going to do the same at all. Like you're going to stand in the public sphere and go, look at me, I'm the champion for the for climate change. And then you're going to go and do the the absolute worst things for the climate and then and then hold up a thing and go, yeah, but I have to do this, guys. Like I have to, you know, sorry, you, you don't get to do the things that you think you have to do, but I do get to do those things that I think I have to do. <laughs> that you can't you can't do that. Okay. So either Either you can stand behind that and say, yeah, we have to do this. And, and so you do too. And we have to make these changes gradually, okay, as a community, as a global community. We have to, we have to make changes gradually and micro adjustments and try to be better at everything we're doing in life from um, commuting to recycling, all those things, right, that are small changes. Or, or if, if we're going to all be forced to make dramatic changes, then you do too. So you don't get to take those trips. <laughs> but I think there's a solution anyway. I was thinking about this and I was thinking about like, what would, what would I do then if I was going to try and be consistent in my thinking? And I'm sort of wondering, there's two, there's two facets to this. One, 
the the idea of a camp or a, a, a team camp versus just training on your own. Um, and two, uh, the idea of like where would be a good location to do either. So one thing I think we have to talk about is is the benefits of a camp where there's a team. So I think, and I'm, I'm shooting a little bit off the hip, I've had I've had kind of some experience personally with a little bit of both, but they're somewhat tainted. So when I was a collegiate athlete, I was balancing that with my music ed degree, which meant running. I was doing most of my mileage by myself during the entire year. But every summer before school started, we had a week-long summer training camp with the whole team. And we we go rent some cabins in northern Minnesota. We did all we did training runs and then hung out, did some service projects. It was a really good time. And that was a massive highlight for me for my entire college career. And I think not just because it's where I met my wife, okay? And now you can hear the um, the manifestations of that. So I think there's benefits. Basically, what I want to say is I think there's benefits to having a camp, a summer, a preseason camp, an in-season camp, whatever, where you where you're you're all together, you're focused on training. I think it builds camaraderie and culture that's important. And I think you could probably argue historically there was a phase during the U.S. ski team where people were a little bit more lone wolfish, especially on the guys' side, and it it didn't really work out. Whatever. Um, but. At the same time, and so so I'm not going to like say we should never get together as a team. I just I do want to explore the idea though of if you, you got to try and balance all these things. Like if you're going to be someone who's saying, "Hey, it's really bad if we're flying all over the place and traveling because we're like all about climate change," uh, but also we need to be professional athletes and train. Like how can we make this all work? We have a huge country. How do we get together? Um, you know, I was talking with with one of my friends. We were we were saying like, I wonder why they wouldn't just say like, if you're on the U.S. ski team, you have to be headquartered in Bend, Oregon. Like you're you're gonna move to maybe the U.S. ski team has like um, a training center facility, dorm type situation or whatever, and they move move everyone there. Reason being, it has a really reliable and long snow season. Um, it's a fairly large city; you can fly in and out of it. Uh, but you know something like that where where it you you can't be spread out across all these different like club areas like we're actually going to just house you center you in one central location so we can be together a lot that would be definitely unique i mean now like norway obviously doesn't do that they kind of keep the club structure they're training with their own individual coaches and stuff but you got to remember that country's like the size of minnesota so that's fine you know so in our country maybe maybe you don't do that or if you want if you're really beholden to no 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 we don't want to mess up having athletes stick with their club coaches like we think that's important what we've established which i would say is more realistic then you can't you can't be like saying we're gonna fly to be together all these different various times and I'm sure if you talk to like Chris Grover and Matt Wickham, they'd probably say, well, we really don't get together that much. Um, okay, fair. It, like our Diggins and Kern, like just on their own volition, flying off to Australia, that, that could, that very well could be the case. It probably is the case, you know, like, hey, we just, we, we got to chase some snow. Then, then I think you yeah, have a sit down talk and go like, what's this, uh, what's the image of this, you know, to the rest of the community? You guys are on the one hand fighting for climate change, on the other hand, like jettisoning all over. And it's not just like in the heart of training like these people like Kern was in California on the beach at one point too you know like right after the season and I don't know like there, there's just way too much travel that, that's like that's what I'm gonna say is like you can get really fit staying in one location and there's a lot of, like it, it there's a lot of places in our country where you can be a really fit Nordic skier there's a lot of places that it would be deserts like you wouldn't want to be in Florida but if you lived in Vermont 11 months of the year you could be a really good skier you could do the same in Alaska Oregon Colorado Minnesota you could do all those things so like what is the point of us and all these athletes like constantly moving around constantly grouping up I don't know like some some of that to me is um it's cool like I'd want to do it too but again it's 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 against your message that you're saying so and there's one solution where it's like, hey, maybe they should all go to Bend, just kind of stay there. If you're if you're really focused on being a team and doing those things, or even like a Park City, maybe Park City's better. You know, like you could definitely argue that with the Salt Lake City Airport, it's a little more central. They've got a lot of infrastructure there for Nordic skiing built in. Uh, make that kind of the housing center location for the U.S. ski team or something like that. Um, and it's it's we already got the center of excellence and all the things that are there. And and honestly. You know, there'd be definitely some people who have said, 
U.S. ski and snowboard put in so much money to that center of excellence. Like, we better dang use it, you know, kind of a thing. So that that I think that's a fairly reasonable argument as well. So there's positives of getting together as a team. I think that's cool. And, and I don't want it to sound like I'm against that. However, I would say you could also make an argument that maybe the U.S. ski takes an approach of like, during the summertime, we want you guys to get fit. We, you know, we're going to talk through what your training looks like, blah, blah, blah. But if you're someone who's like, hey, I want to go live in Norway from June to August and I want to conduct my training there and I want to get up on snow uh, easily, I want to immerse myself in the Norwegian Scandinavian culture, go for it. You know, we don't need to be watching every all the time because they're not anyway. You know, they're at their clubs with their club teams and blah, blah, blah. And, and I think if you're 26, 27, 22, 23 even, like it's okay to conduct training on your own. You don't need a group of like 10 athletes. I, I do think there is to some degree so much reliance on a team. Like they're on the other side of the ditch. You can definitely make the argument that, you know, I'm sitting here and I train by myself all the time, as do most people who are master citizens, level athletes in any sport. And we kind of go, gee, you guys, like you can't get yourself out for your workout by yourself. I get it. Like, there's a definitely advantage again of being with a team. There's some advantages of doing some stuff solo, and I don't think we need to go on either side of the ditch. But right now, I think we're there. There's definitely this like heavy sway towards like I'm so dependent upon my coach, and I'm so dependent upon my team, and they like to emphasize that to the degree that they're almost crippled if they don't have those things in place, which I think is not beneficial. So yeah, it's like, uh, you know, some of these, and that's not every athlete, but there are definitely some. And this is this is just a broad, you know, statement I'll, I'll throw out there in general too, is you just do see this in athletes in this generation, kind of under 20, uh, 25 and under right now. Like they, they would be lost without their coach and they'd be lost without their team. I think those are kind of negative things. But anyway, again, so... All that buildup. I think what I would try to do, no matter where I lived, if I was prioritizing that I wanted to get on snow in the summer, I would go to Norway. I would go there in the summer. Um, the roller skiing is going to be better. The culture is going to be better. And you can get on snow easier, uh, more easily. Uh, and, and, and if you're going to make one lump, like, yeah, it's going to be costly to get over there or, or there's going to be a, uh, a cost is a factor. You just do it once and you're there for three months or whatever. Um, and then you, then you're, you are, I think you're still being consistent. Like if you're a world cup skier, if you're anyone, you know, you, you're warranted, uh, <laughs> some, a carbon footprint that's equivalent to one flight per year that, that you're taking on your own volition there. Like that's okay. You know, I personally haven't flown in an airplane for like three years, but, um, I think if you're a world cup athlete, you want to make a flight over to Norway, spend there, stay there for three months. That's fine. I, I think the, the flights, like the multiple flights per, per off season, one to bend, one to Alaska, one back to Australia, <laughs> you know, like um, one back to Park City. Like th that's the kind of stuff to me that gets a little bit obnoxious where you're making four, five, six in a three month span. You know, like it's that route is not going to be better for your training than if you had made one flight to Norway and just trained there like crazy. The equivalent of that, by the way, would be the runners who fly to Kenya for a three-month block. And many of the Americans who have had extreme success have done that. Paul Chalimo, Ryan Hall, Sarah Hall, um, Mo Farah, not American, but, you know, these athletes who disappear over to Kenya and just go into this monastic lifestyle, you know, and that's honestly, when you think about it, that's what it's about. That's what the off-season, that's what these, that's what a training camp is about. It's about focusing on training for a, a shortened period of time so you can really up the volume, up the recovery, up the nutrition. Like that should be the centralized focus. Um, and, and so that's the part where I think to some degree, while it's helpful to have a teammate there kind of in the fire with you, if you're someone who is practicing with a team all the time, like daily you practice with a team, I almost feel like a, a training camp. It could be like an interesting refresher to be like, you know, I just need to be like on my own, on my own schedule and like just really do everything dialed in that I need to do for me to benefit from training. 
the most. And if that means having my coffee, doing my workout, then coming home and reading and taking a nap and eating my smoothie and eating my salads and just like doing everything the way I want to do it and dialing it in that way, um, it might almost be more effective to not have a team. And that was that was the thing I was going to uh, actually bring up too. It's like, it seems like there's a little bit of superfluous, is that how you say the word? Uh, extra cost that some of these uh, domestic teams seem to be incurring by having like training camps where they let's take like uh bridger ski foundation which i I love them okay they're one of my favorite teams coffee break here quick Mm. if we take them they they're based in bozeman right it's a great place to train now they're training i think pretty much daily together as a team and they've got a great culture great structure and then they will make these trips to various places you know i think they went to norway i think they went to bend i think um, they try to hit up some of the roller ski races around the country. To me, I think all the trips they take, they're very calculated. And just in kind of talking to Andy too, like he's very conscientious of the cost element as well. Like, um, so he's not someone who's like, um, putting the cart before the horse really he's he's thinking these things out. He know also, he knows from experience, a long career, like where you should be and when, so I'm not saying he's making bad decisions there, but I sometimes do wonder, it's like, you know, at some point, maybe, especially if you're in such a good location, like you, you do have to just like dial in on that. And then more may say like, hey guys, we're going to take a three week span here where we're not going to meet as a team and like give kind of general focuses, but then be like, if you want to go conduct some training at home or just like get away from the team for a while, go do that. I don't know that that's probably maybe that's a terrible idea. This is probably why I'm not a good coach, but I don't know. Sometimes it just seems like there's a little too much of this. Like we are all gonna go over there, and now we're all gonna go over here, and it's like the just sheer logistics and cost of all that versus like one person who can maybe like you know sleep on the floor of a you know a, a buddy's house. Like when you do, you know, you do see like a Ben Ogden's just going to go hang out with Gus Schumacher. Okay, now I can sleep on the floor at Gus's house or whatever versus like an entire organization going, you know. So anyway, if that's a, if this has been a long rambling dissertation, you're like, so what's the final takeaway? I guess, you know, I, the only thing I can say is maybe we need to think more about what the purpose of a training camp is and try to meet that. Uh, and also the the bottom line is if we're going to if we're going to stand for something like climate change we really need to think about it because some of these things are sending inconsistent messages. All right, so next up here on the podcast I want to talk about an article that I came across. This is from this summer, Alex Hutchinson, um great writer. He I think he's a runner too. Pretty sure he is a runner. He writes for Outside uh this July 7th. The title is How to Weaponize Your Inner Monologue. New research explores whether the performance-boosting effects of positive self-talk can be attributed to more than just the absence of negativity. Um, okay, so this is a, this is an article all about self-talk, kind of trying to address that idea of is it self is positive self-talk actually doing something, or is it more just replacing the negative self-talk? And I think what we have to imagine before we kind of get into this article is picture yourself as your you know, in the strains of a hard workout or a race, um, where the hurt is coming, the hurt and the pain is coming. Um, the natural human thing that, that inevitably comes in, you know, the brain is telling the body loudly to stop. Uh, and it is sending those automatic messages, uh, self-preservation messages really of, you need to stop doing this now. Like we cannot sustain this. You need to stop. And it, and it, it kind of it very, you know, slowly or um, it, it quick, well, slowly or quickly. There you go. It morphs into you can't do this. And, and it does become almost like a, this a negativity beyond just self-preservation. And so that's where I'm that's where I'm going to work from is if you were kind of like that doesn't make sense, you know, like it's so positive self-talk helps performance just because it's replacing negative self-talk. I think there is some sensibility to that when you when you imagine it like that where you go there's a, the default is actually negative self-talk when you're pushing yourself at the highest levels. So here's the story. It says that monologue running inside your head you know, the one that can unfurl at a rate exceeding several thousand words per minute, has been having a moment of late. 
It's the topic of numerous sports psychology studies and the star of the 2021 bestseller Chatter by University of Michigan psychologist Ethan Cross. Taking control of one's inner voice has transitioned from pat self-help bromide to battle-tested evidence-based performance hack. That's what we've been led to believe anyway. In practice, once you get past the basic claim that the words inside your head matter, evidence that they can be turned to your advantage gets pretty thin on the ground. Hmm. Oh, that's not good. All the sports psychologists out there who are, are on the mental health bandwagon are just like, no, don't say that. What exactly should you say to yourself? How often? In what circumstances? These are the sorts of practical questions researchers are aiming to tackle. One study found that switching self-talk from first person, I can do this, to second, you can do this, improved cyclist 10k times by 2.2%, presumably because the shift entailed a greater sense of distance from what might otherwise seem like an overwhelming challenge. Now, when I read that paragraph, the first thing I thought of was like, ooh, what do I do? Do I say I can do this or do I say you can do this? And in my, you know, 15 second trying to work the memory bank, like putting myself into the Snowmount Range Stampede 2020, I was, or 2021, whatever year was the crazy year. I think that was 2021. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was. You know, what was I telling myself there is the hours kind of were starting to go by and everyone's hurting. You were like, what are we doing out here? I actually think I do say you. Um, you know, I, I am, I'm more mantra based. You know, like I find these weird little two or three word things and I kind of tell them to myself, but I, I definitely, um, I definitely cheer for myself in races and especially very long races. Um, in very long races. I'm, I'm definitely trying to like give myself this encouragement and checkpoints along the way. Like, yep, keep it going here. Make sure you take a water. You know, like, uh, we got, you know, we're, we're one fifth of the way done. This is good. This is good. We're doing really good. You know, you're doing really good. And, and I think it is more of like a UE, which is, is a little bit strange maybe, but, I guess that's the way it should have been, right? That's that's what is helpful. I, I I'm trying to think of what like the self talk was more than like the mile, indoor the indoor mile run to me is is maybe the most painful event you can do um, physically. Like it's it's four to five minutes depending on how fast you are of just kind of torture. You're the thousand might be worse actually, but the mile, the thousand, those two events to me were always the most painful and such to so much of a degree at your self-talk is really revolved around like every 200 meters, what the task at hand is. And I think that's, that's something this article will kind of talk about too, is like when you have these task things in front of you that have to be addressed immediately, it's again, occupying that space that would have been negative self-talk. And I think that that was maybe my more experience in indoor track as a collegian, like the shorter the race distance, the more focused you are on task-driven self-talk, whereas the longer it is, you're kind of more trying to keep yourself upbeat and, and take the little baby steps and kind of take that tortoise approach versus the hair. We continue. So what sports psychologists call motivational self-talk may sound suspiciously like what the self-help progenitor, I, I, for being a writer, I can't talk, Norman Vincent Peale called the power of positive thinking, the idea that what you believe you can achieve. But the updated version does have some empirical heft behind it. Numerous studies over the years have shown that during endurance exercise, it's your perception of how hard you're working that determines whether you speed up or slow down. Subtle external cues like shouts of encouragement from spectators, as University of Pittsburgh scientists showed in a 2004 study, can make physical effort feel less strenuous, even though heart rate, lactate levels, and muscle fatigue remain unchanged. So too, it turns out, can internal cues such as telling yourself you can do this instead of screw this, I'm cooked. <laughs> I would love to come across with it. Have you ever said that in a race too? Oh man, yeah. In 2014, a 2014 study, for example, a research team led by Samuel Marcora, then at Bangor University in Wales, recruited 24 volunteers and taught half of them to use positive self-talk during exercise. The process was simple. After performing a cycling test to exhaustion, the subjects wrote down thoughts that had occurred to them while pedaling. 
identified the positive ones, then used those during at least three subsequent workouts. Two weeks later, they repeated the cycling test. Sure enough, the self-talk group lasted 18% longer, while the control group experienced no change. The reason the research team determined was that although subjects were performing at the same level, those who altered their self-talk rated the effort easier during the second test. This experiment and others like it leave an unanswered question, though. Does negative self-talk slow you down, or does positive self-talk speed you up? Okay, so now we got to address that. Earlier this year, in a study published in the journal Psychophysiology, researchers led by Fabian Bassett of Memorial University of Newfoundland added some relevant data to the debate. They recruited 29 volunteers and gave them self-talk training. A third of them were then assigned to run on a treadmill for an hour at a moderate, but not not an all-out pace, while using their positive self-talk training. A second group did the same run, but were assigned negative self-talk statements, like, my energy feels low and I want to quit. The third group, meanwhile, completed the run while listening to an audio documentary called Stephen Hawking, Master of the Universe, designed to distract them and push both positive and negative self-talk from their minds. Now, I will say if you are of the skiologian bent and you are a Greg Bonsonite apologetics uh, philosopher, it prob- the, <laughs> to say that Stephen Hawking, Master of the Universe, would have distracted you... I don't know. Like, I think if I would have been a participant in this study, it would have been insane to see the responses physiologically that, that could have been taking place while listening to Stephen Hawking um, explain metaphysics. But that's neither here nor there. Surprisingly, this is continuing here, no difference was noted when the groups assigned positive self-talk and those who listened to Hawking's musics on physics, suggesting that distraction is just as good as cheerleading. Interesting. Negative self-talk, on the other hand, made the effort feel significantly harder. Runners in this group had a faster breathing rate, along with higher levels of the stress hormone cortisol in their saliva, indicating that doomsaying can trigger anxiety and stress, thus contributing to a physiologically self-fulfilling prophecy. This is an important finding, because negative thinking is the default option for many endurance athletes. A Danish study published last year in the journal Consciousness and Cognition looked at the internal monologues of 165 runners. Compared with badminton players, they were more likely to report themes such as, I can't keep going, and I'm not going to make it. (laughs) Duh, compared to badminton players. I mean, how many badminton players are halfway through their match and they're like, you know, the physical toll on the body is just too much right now. I mean, I get it. There's some mental strain, and badminton is a sport, trust me, and they're very athletic, but like... Yeah, compared to badminton players, they're more likely to say, I can't keep going. What a revolutionary finding, science. The only response that was even more common among runners than those, sel- than those gloomy self-assessments was, what will I do later today? A means of distraction similar to the Hawking documentary. So basically what they're saying is like runners more likely to say either, I can't keep going, or they just get distracted at that moderate pace. They're kind of like, yeah, what am I going to do later today? But big caveat here. It was at a moderate pace. And that's what he says. So Hutchinson continues saying, there's an important caveat regarding Bassett's findings. However, the pace for the one hour run was 70% of subjects VO2 max, which is a moderate effort. In an all out race, you'd expect a much greater flood of intrusive negativity driven by mounting physiological distress. That's Hutchinson's way of saying what I said earlier, where when you push yourself really, really hard, um, the mounting physiological distress is going to be uh, manifest itself in the brain just saying, you got to stop, like you can't keep doing this. And I think where the, the, the entire office of where sports psychologists, they're hanging their hat is going, hey, look, the brain, there's this line between the brain trying to preserve itself and a performance, possible performance benefit of us coming in there and going, if we control this inner monologue, this inner dialogue, you can do things that you um, you didn't actually think were possible, okay? And I think it's going to be tricky for us to go, is that a scientific claim or is that something that has like anecdotal evidence? Think the Dan Hobbs story, if you didn't listen to it, you know, what, what he's presenting is like just really willing himself to not only do things physically that are difficult or nearly impossible, but also will himself to have a good attitude about life, about the day. Uh, And I think we all have kind of experienced some of this to some degree, which is why we go, there's something there. 
Um, but to prove this scientifically, I think could be difficult. However, I will say when we bring up stuff like the hormones, the cortisol, the saliva, all that stuff, to me, that's the closest we can get, or at least the closest we've come so far is going, what does self-talk do to these physiological responses? Because I, I do think like the scientific literature seems to be very clear in terms of like saying your hormones dictate so much of everything performance feeling digestion like it's just kind of they're the things that are controlling you so if we get to the root of what controls our hormone responses then we have something from a scientific standpoint and it kind of sounds like that's what we're trying to do so um, in an all-out race you'd expect a much greater flood of intrusive negativity driven by mounting physiological distress and you would probably have a lot more trouble staying focused on hawking's ideas also true try 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 thinking about something complex when you're really in pain modes of distraction like podcasts and musics might be great when you are cruising along on an easy training run but if you are trying to push your limits then you have to grapple more directly with task specific feelings and emotions boom right so hutchinson does kind of agree with what i'm saying here too you up the ante to like a hundred percent or super anaerobic stuff you are no longer going to be benefited by a distraction mechanism so we, we need to point this out too to athletes in terms of addressing pain. I think young athletes could benefit a lot from this where they, they don't, when you're young, I'm talking like junior high, even younger than that, you know, fourth grade mile, um, the going to the limits, it's such a novel feeling to them. Um, it's very scary. In fact, I think it's, it's kind of rare that a kid will uh, gravitate towards that intuitively so they have to sort of be it has to be explained to them that like uh yep it, it is normal that you felt really uncomfortable and that you wanted to stop um but you know here's something here's what's going on your your brain is saying you you got to stop you got to stop because there's that self-preservation mechanism but there's another level you can reach if you figure out how to um focus positively with your self-talk and also focus on task. So the really great runners would have something like, you know, smooth flow state. Uh, they, they would have internal cues, self-talk cues about um, their, their foot plant or their knee drive or their relaxed arms. These are things that you train yourself to um, focus on when the pain starts to come. And, and, th and that's actually, you know, what, what we need to, I think, present to kids, especially, especially runners. It works in skiing too, though, but especially runners, runners, I think that's where you really start to feel the pain immediately because like running is such a boring sport anyway. Like what are we even focused on? You know, like catch that guy in front of you. Um, so the pain element comes right away. And I think that's why it can be one of the best sports to train those sorry getting phone calls i'm blowing up uh right now it could be one of, it could be a great sport to train cues self-talk related to cues and and it translates to skiing because form related cues then become so beneficial in running i think focusing on form cues it's also beneficial you know lowering the shoulders relaxing the arms um driving the knees things like that like running tall uh those those things do have like tangible effects uh, but even more so in skiing, I think to to ski with proper technique makes you faster. But but I would say going back at a younger age, I I don't think because skiing is kind of it's fun. You're going downhill, you're flowing, you're flying over the snow. I think there's less of a tendency for some kids to like really go to the pain cave immediately in that sport. The, and it's not to say they're not working hard, but I just think there's there's built-in things that prevent it from happening quite as immediately, such as downhills that allow you to recover, um, just like a, a natural focus on what's on what's below my feet right now. How am I going to take this turn? Stuff like that. Okay. So uh, a side note there, there's one reason why if you're trying to train an Olympic champion in skiing, you might want to think about having them be a runner first. <laughs> uh, modes of distraction. Where was I here? Oh, yeah. So he said you have to grapple directly with task-specific feelings. At mile 20 of a marathon, there's no room for neutrality. It's a mental battle between the agony you are enduring now and the ecstasy, ecstasy that awaits you down the road if you can manage to hang on that long. With that in mind, I'd be cautious about overgeneralizing based on Bassett's results. There are clearly some situations where avoiding negative self-talk, for instance, by distracting yourself, is helpful. 
There are likely other situations, including grueling races, where having a well-practiced arsenal of encouraging phrases at your disposal might be an asset. I would say the former sentence there, distracting yourself, this is beneficial in races like the Leadville 100. The latter statement saying grueling races, arsenal of encouraging phrases, you have, you need to have those at your disposal. This is more like any effort that's going to be in the three-hour range and under. I, I found to be extremely beneficial. And all the way down to probably, honestly, like a, I'd say an 8K. When you get 5K and under, though, I think this is where you you have like you, it's a mix between strategy like you you actually are trying to dedicate some of your mind to what is happening in the race and how you can like strategic you need to react immediately because there's no time for error and cues um and also there is there is a positive self-talk element to it as well because there's no doubt you're going to hit a wall where you're like I don't think I can stay with that guy especially like a 5k you know it might be 3 laps to go a pack separates and you're just like, I'm hurting so bad. This is as fast as I can go. Okay. That's kind of where I was often. I'll often get separated. My dad was always just cheering for me. He's like, you got to stay with that group. You have to stay with that group. That's where the move is being made. And, and I always felt like I'm doing everything I can right now. So I definitely cannot go with that group. And I'm just going to stay in this pace. <laughs> and that's not, it's not good for performance related goals. Um, so there is, there is an element of like mind over matter as well when it comes to pain. Okay, so as I learned a few years ago from Phil Wallace, a self-talk researcher at Canada's Brock University, there may even be some scenarios that don't fit neatly into either category. Back in 2017, Wallace was the lead author of one of the studies that helped establish motivational self-talk as a science-based intervention. He showed that cyclists could be trained to alter their self-talk in light of how hot they felt while riding in 95-degree heat and consequently to ride faster. He also uses self-talk when coaching athletes in the real world. Most of them find the approach useful, he told me, but there was one mountain biker who simply could not get rid of the negative thoughts that flooded his mind whenever another rider was on his back wheel. I can't maintain this pace, he would tell himself. This guy is going to blow past me. Fortunately, the mountain biker came up with his own solution. If negative self-talk was harmful, he decided, he would weaponize it. Whenever he was locked in tight competition, he'd tap into that stream of negative thoughts and shout them at the other rider. <laughs> at the end of the day, these interventions are tools, Wallace said. Some people use a tool like a screwdriver to screw something in, and some people use the back end to hammer in a nail. Interesting. So... I guess that's one approach you could take. Great article by Alex Hutchinson. I like it. Good takeaway. Um, so next time you're feeling those negative self-talks, maybe just shout them at the guy next to you. Wow. They talk about the great community involved in ultra running and endurance sports. And, oh, yeah, I just love the community, the support, the inclusivity, you know. And then I would be the one there. It would fit perfectly, I think, for, like, basically all the things I stand for, you know, and just sticking out, like, a sore thumb there, like – uh, sticking out like a sore thumb. Is that is that the phrase I'm looking for even? I don't know. Um, but to be the person who would be shouting negative phrases at people as we're climbing up a, you know, a long mountain pass on our bikes, it would just, it would be amazing, I think. Um, well, we have a, we have a lot to get to, uh, as you can tell, a serious gear podcast. So we thought we'd, we'd tease you there with that, that little study, give you some scientific research. Uh, there's so much I didn't really get to, though. I did want to mention, did you guys see that uh, Petter Nortug, he's in the news again? This was a little while back. You know, he's making his big comeback. And apparently he was criticizing uh, Norwegian athletes for not showing up at the roller ski races, you know, and blah, blah, blah. And um, uh, Ray... Ranghild Glorsen Haga, is that how you say her name? She hit back and said, you know, you don't have to um you don't have to be super fit in June and show up at these roller skate races. That's stupid. Like we're all focused on the winter anyway. So that's kind of interesting. A little bit of drama there. Like what who do you think's right on this battle? Is it about uh, living up to First of all, oh, you, do, do these elite athletes owe the fans something? Which I think is part of Nortug and Klabo, who also advocates the same thing as Nortug does, that we that they should be showing up at these races, they should be competing hard. Do, do these elite athletes owe the fans something? Or do they owe the fans something in the winter? You know, like, there's, there's a lot of different ways you could look at it. Um, because I, I think on the one hand, you go, 
hey guys, you're getting paid all this money. Like, yeah, you should be out there all the time. You should be provide the show where you're you need to do that. Um, on the other hand, you could say, uh, yeah, we we do have this responsibility, and and thus it doesn't do us any good to be fit in June. We're gonna wait until the one meet that actually counts. You know, or you could take that third approach that like, I don't know anyone, anything. So if I want to be really fit in June and go to roller ski races, great. If I don't, who cares? Like, it's my life. Let me do what I want. I think I tend to take the third approach there. And I want to wrap in an athlete that has been um, doing absolutely amazing things. She might be the most dominant athlete in the world right now. And that is Sydney McLaughlin. So Sydney um, is, is, is so dom- by the way if you don't understand how dominant she is her 400 meter hurdles time at the world championships would have placed in the top 7 in the open 400 at the world championships so she's obliterating her own world records she's just she's she's actually to the point now where she's bored of the event you know she was saying in the live tv interviews like i might go to a different event i just i think i've kind of done everything i wanted to do here and she's 21 you know made the olympics at 16 just incredible and One thing that she sometimes gets criticized for, uh, uh, this is so American of us, is that she only seems to care about the world championships and the Olympics (laughs) and the U.S. championships. So the criticism is, yeah, she's she's just amazing how well she peaks for those races. She always shows up and is dominant at them. But we never get to see her anywhere else. Um, And... The reason I think this is such a terrible take is but we criticize people for not showing up. So here's an athlete who shows up when it counts and we're criticizing her for it. I mean, because I, I, the criticism there is like she should be doing all of these other races too for the fans. Um, okay, so like is the expectation that that she should do all those races for the fans and still be able to be perfectly razor sharp at the world championships? Like, I got to think Sydney McLaughlin knows, is it McLaughlin? McLaughlin knows what she needs to be razor sharp fitness at the most important meets. And that's why she structures her calendar and her training and her racing like that. Like, money is not really an issue for her now. And so she's just doing what she can to be the best she can be. But even even if you're like, yeah, I think she should. I think she should be able to be like a world beater at every regular season meet, boom, 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 and still be a world beater at the world championships. That would be the perfect world. It's like, I mean, if you in what in what situation are you like beholden to someone else who has not given you anything? I don't know. It just seems it seems like such a crazy arbitrary claim. I, I guess the only thing they're standing on is well fans pay the athletes salaries you know directly and indirectly so athletes are responsible to give the fans what they want but what i would say to that is well it's a free market too so if if you're really dissatisfied with what this athlete's doing then don't go to games and don't support it so respond accordingly you know, clearly they're doing enough to make you happy because you're still paying the tickets to go here or you're buying Nike shoes or what have you. So I know I, I don't think an athlete is responsible to the fans. I think an athlete's responsible to, you know, if, if a company is paying them a contract like, you know, Nike's paying her two million dollars a year and Nike wants her to go to the Shovel Lake Invitational. Well, yeah, then she has to go to the Shovel Lake Invitational because Nike is uh, Nike owns her in that sense. Just like you know, the Vale Daily is paying me my salary, and they say we want you to go cover the squirrel races over there. Like I'm going to go cover the squirrel races, whether I like it or not. But I don't think it's it's not to say like you know I'm the I'm the community that you're writing about, so you need to cover this. You owe it to me. It's like there isn't that that relationship. I don't think does um, exist at least hard and fast. Like, I think there is a, there again, there's some truth to it. Like, Sydney, in a sense, owes something to her fans because they're the ones that um, support her through Instagram, social media followings. They're the ones that make her valuable, in a sense. Um, but, but that's, it's not direct enough where she, like, should be altering things. And certainly not an athlete who obviously has it figured out. You know, she obviously has 
things dialed in so she's excellent. Why would you attack an athlete like that? Um, so in the skiing realm, I guess, you know, I'm not as aware totally of, um, you know, what some of these athletes are doing. It's kind of interesting, I think, honestly, that Klabo would be someone, or Nordtug too, saying, hey, guys, you should be here at these roller ski things. Because the conventional training wisdom would say, well, careful, you don't want to be super fit then because you're not going to be fit in the winter. But look at Klabo, look at Nortug. Those guys have, are, they show up and they always, they always have shown up at like the world championship. So <laughs> they, they actually speak from a place of authority, I think, when it comes to this issue. If they can say, yeah, you should be here and look, it's not affecting our winter performance, I think they have something there. But, Anyway, there was the last little rant of the Cedar Skier podcast. We're so glad you joined us here today. Oh, I didn't even get to my book reviews. Uh, we'll have to save that for next time. We just finished reading The Wreck of the Essex Whale Ship, and um, I also finished Ryan Rogers' book. I don't know. I, I think I probably said I've allotted that book many, many times, but it deserves to be praised. Just an, an unbelievable, unbelievable content, unbelievable writing, great pictures, just a phenomenal project there, something you could – Man, if I could do a book like that, I would just hang my hat on that book forever. Just be like, this is my contribution to the Nordic ski world. Uh, but instead, we're making podcasts like this, you know, that <laughs> that's that's our contribution, I guess, to the discussion. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope that you are um, getting out, putting in some Ks on roller skis and not falling like us, and you've got some equipment that's working. If you are so kind and you feel like you want to bestow upon the cedarskier.com team like a new pair of marwee classic roller skis <clears throat> you can reach out at cedarskier at gmail.com and i will send you my address and you can drop off those planks for us and then we will we will be happy once again but if not that's fine too you could just listen to this podcast and and um you know well you can send us an email of criticism comments uh complaints we we take those as well otherwise keep on skiing keep on striving or keep on striving, keep on skiing. Hi, Ajay. Thanks for the nice little sniff. 